0: Talking about Dharma, if you were to ask what the focal point of the Buddha's teachings is, all the traditions would say wisdom. And if you then ask what is meant by wisdom, the answer would be recognizing the nature of reality. And that, of course, means selflessness. In some Buddhist traditions, selflessness refers only to persons. But in Mahayana, selflessness refers to both persons and phenomena. If you were to ask how you can have uh, selflessness of phenomena as only people have a self, we would say that self in this context means inherent existence, independent of anything other than its own characteristic nature. In English, we might say something self is its essence, that which essentially separates it from all other phenomena. We can think of such an essence belonging to both things and people. We could conjecture, for instance, that a house has an essence that makes it different from a rosebush. But from a Buddhist point of view, neither the house nor the rosebush has such, such an essence. There is no essence of house or essence of rosebush. Both are merely the result of different causes and conditions coming together, parts being formed and joining, and a mind labelling the collection. No more or no less. Similarly, we can find no essence of person, no essence of me, and no essence of you. Of course, one's mind naturally grasps at you and me as though we had some unique and independent essence that makes us what we are. If you could, you would instinctively see me as if I was a real person, quite independent of the environment and everything in it. I would see you in a similar way, But that's not how either of us actually exists. Physically, both of us are a product of the environment and are completely dependent on the environment. We are also products of our previous conditioning and actions and all the various forces that came together to form us into the types of individuals we are. But apart from that, when we try to find an independent and inherent essence through intensive analysis, we will not find any such essence anywhere. If our minds are really sharp and powerful, we could only trace how we came to be as we are and nothing else. That is true, even if we start with a Big Bang and trace how various elements came together to form atoms, those joined to form more complex substances, those in turn came together to create even more diverse phenomena, until slowly the world was born with all the many and various, varied fauna and flora. Those went through evolution, changed in the process, to form even more sophisticated organisms. Eventually we had fish, dinosaurs and other creatures and in due course man appeared and so we started on our own history. Right from the time of the Big Bang all down through history things have been transforming into other things, getting more and more complex until some of the constantly changing energies collated to form you. There never was some essential substance that the energies and substances gathered around and adhered to. It was only ever the constantly evolving energies, both mental and physical, that coalesced to very briefly create the person I call you. In other words, if our history started at the Big Bang, which the Buddhist texts say is not true, we could possibly trace every particle of energy as it made its way from the Big Bang to become a tiny part of of ourselves. We could also possibly trace our mental energies from the time of the Big Bang, noting the influences that steered them from one position to another, from one being to another. But apart from the creations and dissolutions of these sometimes very complex energies, we would not find anything that defined us. Actually, experiencing this would in bitterest terms be wisdom. Of course, this is not the only wisdom. I have little idea how cars work, And when something goes wrong with the one I'm driving, I will have to take it to a mechanic. He will probably know what to do to fix it, just by my description of the problem. In other words, the the mechanic has wisdom related to such mechanical phenomena. That is conventional wisdom, and there are many kinds of conventional wisdoms, as there are phenomena, and people to experience them. But this is not what we're talking about here. These are all conventional wisdoms whereas when we are examining the nature of reality itself we are exploring ultimate wisdom what the Mayana practitioner calls emptiness. If you were with us last week you will know that by emptiness we do not mean a complete lack of existence. Things are not empty of existence but of a certain kind of existence. Unfortunately, That kind of existence is the way that our minds grasp at our reality. We instinctively think reality exists one way and so react to that idea of it while it actually exists in a completely different way. We think things and people have their own inherent essence when they are only a manifestation of all the causes, conditions and parts that brought them to appear as they do. A house is nothing more than a collection of wood, Nails, screws, tiles, concrete and so on, brought together in a particular way by the people who built it. Every bit of wood, nail, screw, tile and bit of concrete is nothing more than an expression of its history, in the same way as the house is an expression of its history and all the forces and influences, going back to the Big Bang and before, that shaped that history. That is all, but that is not how we see it. And seeing it as if it has independent existence and ourselves have independent existence, we relate to it with emotion, based on whether it appears attractive or repulsive to us. That reaction leaves impressions on our minds, and those impressions form our experiences in the future. The more disturbed our impressions are, the more future discomfort we will experience, while the more peaceful and compassionate those impressions are, the more comfortable our future experiences will be. Basically, and in a very rough explanation, that is Buddhist wisdom and all the Buddhist teachings point to this dichotomy in the way we grasp at reality and the way it truly exists. Essentially, the Buddha taught that we have to realize that persons and phenomena are completely lacking, completely empty of our mistaken way of grasping at them. They are empty of inherent independent existence. Why do we have to realize this? Because we want to be free of suffering, and it's our mistaken view of reality that is the root cause of all our misery, from the least to the worst. Destroy the root, and you destroy the whole tree of suffering, trunk, branches, twigs, leaves, and buds. How to accomplish this is what we started to look at last week. In looking at the Bodhisattva's path to complete enlightenment, we've covered the six perfections a person must cultivate for enlightenment and have come to the last perfection, wisdom, and in particular, the special insight that realizes that wisdom. The previous perfection was concentration and particularly calm abiding, the mind that will blissfully stay unmoving on an object for as long as a meditator wishes. The combination of the two, calm abiding and special insight, is what cuts through our mistaken view, and so all the suffering that we call cyclic existence. Once we have that ultra stable mind, we use it to analyze reality very closely, and the strength of the concentration and of the analysis is like a laser that vaporizes the mistaken grasping. Last week, we talked about a fourfold meditation that leads to the realization of emptiness. In rather technical jargon, it is described as firstly, identifying the object of negation then ascertaining the pervasion thirdly, ascertaining the absence of oneness and lastly, ascertaining the absence of difference. We went through what it meant to identify the object of negation. Essentially, that means getting to know the self of person or things that we instinctively grasp at. It is called the object of negation because it is the thing whose existence in our meditation we will negate or deny. That self, we will find, does not exist in any shape or form anywhere. We identified two types of I. The first is the mere conventional label I, which we ascribe to our body and mind combination. If, for instance, you ask, what are you doing, and I say I'm talking on the radio, with a sense that the eye is just a label for the collection of ever-changing elements that make this body and mind up, it is the first type of eye. This eye does exist and is necessary for us to be able to communicate with each other. It does exist conventionally, but it does not exist ultimately. The second type of eye is the object of negation. It is the eye that we think is independent of the collection of body and mind that exists somehow inherently and from its own side, as the philosophers say. It is the I that we rush to defend if we are harshly criticized, or that gets all pleased and puffed up if we are highly praised. At such times, it seems as if a real and independent I exists quite separate from the body-mind combination. Basically, we think that this is how we really and ultimately exist as a person, when this I does not exist at all. The I exists only conventionally as the first type of I which has no ultimate existence at all. We have to completely get rid of this idea of an ultimately existing independent I to attain liberation from cyclic existence. So that is where we got up to last week and before we go any further let's set our motivation as we usually do for the program. As I have said before it is important to set as positive a motivation as possible because it is the motivation that makes our actions positive or negative. Keeping that in mind, the best motivation is to gain enlightenment so that just like the Buddha, we can be the greatest benefit possible to all the beings we have karmic connection with. So let's take a minute to set such a motivation or if that seems too difficult, at least motivate for your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now, before we continue with the rest of the meditation on emptiness, I must repeat something I said before about this topic. It is difficult to fully grasp the I that is being negated and de- develop the right view about emptiness. It is also easy if we meditate too soon on this topic to fall into the trap of thinking that things don't exist at all. Therefore, we are often advised not to meditate on emptiness until we've taken lots of teachings on it and are guided by a master who has experience with it. So, if you're new to what we are discussing, please just use it as a springboard for more study, rather than taking it as a topic for meditation. If you find yourself getting confused or starting to think things don't have existence at all, then it is best just to leave the topic altogether, until you have the opportunity to study it under a very experienced teacher. It is said that if we become convinced that things and people don't really exist at all, that they're just all illusions, we will fall into the view of the nihilists. From that point of view, it's much more difficult to get the correct view than if we start from our current state of seeing things and people as independently and inherently existent. We're really discussing the view of emptiness so that we can develop a base for further study and contemplation, so that our knowledge grows. Not so that we meditate on it, unless, of course, you have already had lots of explanation from a fully qualified teacher on this. But that is quite difficult to come by, so it's better to go carefully and slowly. At this point, it is not too difficult to make quite a major mistake about the view, so we should go with lots of care. Having said that, let's continue with a description of the rest of the meditation. We have now identified the object of negation, So we proceed to the next step, ascertaining the pervasion. Having a clear and vivid idea of the I to be negated, we now have to investigate for ourselves whether it exists or not. To do this, we examine every possible way that it could exist. If we find that it cannot possibly exist in any of those ways, the only possibility left will be that it cannot exist at all. However, If any one way even vaguely suggests that the inherently existing I could exist, we cannot then assume that it does not exist. The argument we are going to consider centers on the relationship between the inherently existing I and our body-mind complex, in Buddhism referred to as the five aggregates of form, feeling, discrimination, compositional factors and consciousness. Form is basically The body and the objects that the body experiences through the senses and compositional factors are all those mental and emotional factors that make us up excluding feeling and discrimination which are separated out because our lives are based on feelings of pleasure, pain and neutrality and because the way we get to know right from wrong is through discrimination. So they play a particularly important part in our reactions to the world. Now, if the aggregates in the I were inherently and independently existent, a relationship between them can only occur in one of four ways. They are inherently the same thing. They are inherently different. They are inherently separate and one at the same time. They are inherently neither separate nor one thing. Being separate and one simultaneously, and also being neither separate nor one, are impossible how can two things exist both inherently separate and inherently one at the same time? And how can any two inherently existing things be neither inherently separate nor inherently one at the same time? If an inherent relationship between two inherently existing things does exist, it must do so in one of two ways. Either the two are inherently separate or they are inherently the same. So, if the five aggregates and the I are both inherently existent, they are either inherently different from each other or inherently the same thing. They can exist in no other relationship to each other. This is the conclusion that the second step in this four-part meditation leads us to. If we went through the arguments to show that the I did not exist in a number of ways, but we were still uncertain whether it existed in some way we would not yet considered, we could still not say for sure anything about its existence. Only when we have covered all the bases will we be sure. So that is the purpose of this second step, to find out all the ways that the I could exist. Once we have proved it cannot exist in any of those ways, we will be sure then that it doesn't exist in any way at all. The texts use an example of a thief. Say there are only two rooms in the upstairs story of your house, and you are sitting downstairs. You hear a noise upstairs, which you suspect is a thief. You go upstairs to investigate, but once you have thoroughly searched both rooms, you find no one, you can be sure that there is no thief upstairs at all. Similarly, in our argument, once we have searched the five aggregates comprehensively and have also searched everything separate from the five aggregates and still not find an inherently existing I... We can be sure such a thing does not exist, no matter how apparently clear it appears to us. We will then have proved the emptiness of the eye, in other words, that it has no inherently independent existence at all. The great Indian master Nagarjuna in his text Precious Garland says, The person is not earth, not water, not fire, not wind, not space, not consciousness and not all of them. What person is there other than these? Because a person is a composite of six elements, it is not an ultimate. Likewise, the elements are not ultimates, because each is a composite. Now the third step in the meditation is to prove that the five aggregates and the I are not one thing. In technical jargon we mentioned before we are ascertaining the absence of oneness. If the I were inherently the same as the aggregates, In other words, if I and the body-mind combination were the same thing, ten ludicrous consequences would arise. Contemplating these consequences, we will have to come to the conclusion that the I and the five aggregates are not inherently the same. The first consequence is that because there are five aggregates, there necessarily would have to be five I's. Remember we are talking about inherently independent things here. If each of the five aggregates were an independent inherently existing thing and they were all the same as the I it must mean that we have five eyes, which is patently not true. The second consequence is similar to the first because I defines only one thing. If the aggregates and the I were inherently the same then the aggregates must only be one thing. In other words, the aggregates are not five but only one and that is also absurdly contrary to our experience. So the I and the five aggregates cannot be inherently one. Another consequence would be that designating I would be pointless, because the five aggregates have already been designated. So I would only be a synonym for the aggregates and nothing more. From my personal point of view, I don't find this argument all that convincing, because many things have synonyms for a variety of reasons. For instance, a car is also known as wheels or a motor, even now rarely an automobile, and we usually understand each other quite well using any of these terms. Anyway, a fourth consequence is that there would be no agent to experience things. The I is the agent that experiences the five aggregates. For instance, I experience feelings or I discriminate. But if the two were the same, there would be no difference between the feelings and the discrimination and the I. So we could no longer say, I feel sad, I see the sky so blue today, and so on. Also it would be meaningless to say, my body, my feelings, my consciousness, as though the I owns the body, feelings, and so on. Then again, if the I was the same as the five aggregates, when the body was cremated at death time, the consciousness and the I would also be destroyed in the fire. But consciousness is non-material and cannot be destroyed by fire and also the I is a continuum that goes from life to life without ever being destroyed. And that leads on to the next nonsensical consequence. For as the I continues from one life to another the five aggregates will also have to and so when the I is born in the next life it would have to also be born with this life's body and mind or five aggregates. For instance If I was born a donkey in a donkey's womb in my next life because the I and the five aggregates are inherently the same my body of this life would also have to be there in the donkey's womb. Presumably I would come out with large furry ears, a long tail and every second word would be Eeyore. The seventh consequence is the reverse of the previous one. Because the I is the same as the aggregates and the aggregates perish at death time, the I would also perish at death. But as we said before, the I is a continuum that goes from life to life. The eighth consequence depends on the fact that in the formless realms, beings only have four apparent aggregates. They don't have form. In other words, they don't have a body, but exist in powerful meditation as consciousness with all the attendant mental factors. If the I and the five aggregates were inherently the same thing, the formless realms would not then exist, because in that realm one of the aggregates is not manifest. So proof of the formless realm is proof that the I and the five aggregates are not inherently the same. The next consequence is that we would be able to see the I. Of course, because we can see the body, we should also be able to see the I, as it is one with form and other four aggregates. We should be able to see the eye as clearly as we see a horse or a radio. But we cannot see the eye, for if we could, we wouldn't be having this conversation now, would we? So the eye is not the same as the aggregates. Then the tenth consequence is that the mind would become hungry, thirsty, hot or cold. We could say, I am hungry, I am thirsty, I am hot, I am cold, and if the aggregates and the eye were inherently the same it would mean the mind is hungry, thirsty, hot or cold. But from our experience, we know that only the body goes through those fe- those things. So those are the ten consequences that follow if the I and the five aggregates are inherently the same. The last step in this meditation is to establish that the I and the five aggregates are not inherently different. That means that through their own independent existence, they are different from each other, existing quite separately. If that were the case, Then we again get a number of untenable consequences, the first of which is that if the five aggregates were sick, for instance, saying I am ill would be nonsensical because the I is completely separate from the aggregates that are experiencing the illness. Another consequence is that as we can point to a dog and a cat because they are distinct, we should be able to point separately to the I and the aggregates or body and mind. We should be able to clearly distinguish the two from each other but we cannot, which indicates that the I is not something distinct from the aggregates. No I exists separate from the aggregates. A third consequence of the body-mind having no relationship to the I is that we could not claim, I am growing old, or even I am growing. We could not say, I am born, I get sick, I die, because it is the five aggregates that undergo these developments. We are not even able to speak of such things because speech is part of the aggregates and so the I, being an inherently separate thing from the aggregates, would not then be able to talk. So now we can see that the I is not inherently one with the aggregates, nor is it inherently different from them. As we have direct experience of the aggregates, the only conclusion we come to is that the inherently existing I just doesn't exist at all. Why? Because we exhausted all the possible ways it could exist, and none is tenable. In the meditation, when we have gone through these reasonings and not found a truly existing I, a spacious emptiness will arise in the mind. We concentrate on this for as long as we can. Although this is not the real realization of emptiness, it is a simulacrum that is very helpful in persuading the mind to see things as they really are. We all have a conventional or nominal self or I that is a label on the basis of the body and mind continuum. Even Buddha has this, And it's quite a valid I or self. We've talked about this I before. It is the one that if you are eating and someone asks what you are doing, that applies when you reply, I am eating. In this case, it's just a label on an organism that's moving its jaws. There's not much sense of an inherently independent I, such as when you are criticized for doing something you never did. The I that arises in such circumstances seems rarely and independently existing, and that is the very I that doesn't exist at all. It is the object of negation, to coin a Buddhist phrase, that I never existed and never will. The Mahayanists say the organism is completely empty of such a self. An example of this is if you see someone walking down the street. How does your mind grasp at them? To the unthinking, non-analytical mind, the person would appear to have an independent and inherent existence, not depending on anything else. Of course, the analysing mind would know that this is not true at all. It would know the I depends on the body and mind, and without that body and mind, the I could not exist. But unless we are so familiar with the correct view of how things exist, we will automatically, and through lots of familiarity, just return to our old habit. We will automatically see someone as inherently skinny or fat, ugly or beautiful, and so on and not see them just as something that appears depending on causes, conditions, parts and the label that we've given them. Only when we realize emptiness will we be able to free ourselves of this mistaken but persistent grasping. And that we realize by continual meditation with a mind of calm abiding on emptiness itself, developing the special insight that cuts through cyclic existence. And now we've run out of time and must go. As always, Thank you for joining the program today and please please tune in again next week. I hope you have a wonderful time until we meet again. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.